Hello, Happy New Year and welcome to the first Health on the Line of 2023. As the leaders I speak to daily tell me, and as the grim headlines attest, the health and care system entered 2023 in crisis. The focus is on ambulance delays, overcrowded EDs and hospitals unable to find enough beds. But everywhere in the system, primary, community, mental health, we can see what happens when demand so regularly and substantially exceeds capacity. I sense at least a greater understanding beyond the NHS about why we are where we are, about the impact of the austerity years, about the effect on staff performance and morale of so many vacancies, about the impact of capital underfunding, about the difficulty of achieving innovation or improvement in crisis conditions. Now the Prime Minister has got involved. This is to be welcomed, and not just because it's generated some additional short-term funding. After all, it's only six months since the occupant of number 10 was prone to boast about 40 new hospitals and claim that social care was, in his words, sorted. But it's odd when this crisis has been so long predicted to be holding emergency Downing Street summits as it unfolds. And as I speak, it seems as though the government's desire to be seen to be doing something about industrial action is not being fully matched by willingness to change course in its negotiating stance. As I've often emphasised in the media, even if there were no unions and no strikes, we would still have to address the huge challenges of recruitment, retention and motivation in our workforce. More days of industrial action loom, something that feels like it could be the final straw to many leaders. Somehow we will get through the next two months, but we need to learn and do whatever is necessary to avoid another winter like this one. With that in mind, the system, place, provider leaders I speak with share elements of a common agenda. They talk about better integration, use of shared monitoring systems, digital hubs, expansion of remote and virtual care, using data to identify those most at risk and help them and their families be more resilient. The ingredients will be similar, but because everywhere is different, the recipe for recovery and reform will vary. We at the Confed are delighted to be supporting the Hewitt Review, exploring what forms of support and accountability can best enable system working. This winter has come too early for most systems to have the impact they aspire to. But in the spirit of Hewitt, we're hoping to use our networks to develop an approach to challenges like winter resilience, approaches which are more collaborative and adaptive, less prescriptive, less top-down. We were delighted just before Christmas to publish a major report on mental health. Mental health, autism and learning disability services need to change. And our report sets out a vision for what these services should look like in 10 years' time for people of all ages in England. It was commissioned by the NHS Confederation and written by the Centre for Mental Health. The report brings together research and engagement with a wide range of stakeholders as well as people who bring personal and professional experience about what these vital services should be like in 2032. The report identifies 10 interconnecting themes that underpin the vision and three requirements that would turn the vision into reality. So to mark 
the publication of that report. This edition of Health on the Line speaks with two experts on mental health, both with fascinating things to say. New ideas. Big debates. Meeting the changemakers. Transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. So I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Bell. Uh, Andy has been with the Centre for Mental Health since 2002. He became Deputy Chief Executive 2009, and he'll be interim CEO from, from early 2023. Andy's worked for more than 25 years in the voluntary sector, striving for equality and social justice through research, communicating evidence, influencing policy, informing uh, debate. And he was the driving force behind the Commission for Equality and Mental Health, funded by the Elliot Simmons Charitable Trust, which was established to investigate inequalities in mental health and whose work culminated in a final report, Mental Health uh, for All. Um, amongst the other things that Andy does, he also plays a pivotal role in facilitating the local authority Mental Health Challenge, which engages elected members across uh, the country. But we're really talking today, Andy, because you have authored our new report, No Wrong Door, which seeks to develop a positive but also realistic vision for mental health, autism and learning disability services for people in England uh, over the next decade. And that's what we're going to focus on. So first of all, Andy, welcome to Health on the Line. Thanks, Matthew. Nice to be here. So just before we talk about the report, Andy, tell us about the Centre for Mental Health. How do you work? What are your objectives? So Centre for Mental Health is an independent organisation. We've been around since 1985. Uh, our purpose as a charity is to uh, eradicate inequalities in mental health. And we do that through a mixture of research, uh, evidence gathering, uh, policy analysis, um, training and support. And uh, we work alongside organisations like the NHS Confederation to uh, really shift the debate on mental health. So a starting point, I guess, when we look at mental health is a particularly kind of stark example of a more general problem, which is the gap between demand and capacity. And that gap is is huge. Just talk us through, Andy, what are the factors that have led to this enormous capacity gap? It is an enormous gap. I, mean, I think most of the population surveys uh, of, of uh, people's mental health suggest that something like between a quarter and a third uh, of people with a mental health difficulty get any help and support for it, certainly from, from a professional service anyway. But effectively, this comes down to a number of things. Partly, it is that um, awareness and understanding of mental health until the last decade or so has always been quite poor compared to physical health. Uh, and, and partly it's been down to underinvestment in mental health services. Uh, we know uh, the NHS in England is attempting to address that and, and the long term plan in particular has, has brought significant extra funding for mental health services. But nonetheless, we have a legacy uh, of mental health being undervalued compared with physical health. And, and um, there's just not that same pressure uh, on, on systems, whether that's nationally or locally, uh, to bridge the gap, as we've seen in other areas of healthcare. And what about the demand side uh, uh, of this? Something that I feel quite strongly is that we can't create the impression that the NHS alone can solve the mental health crisis. You know, I think sometimes 
because in a sense organizations like us focus on resources we talk about the capacity gap it can sometimes feel like we're implicitly saying that a perfect world would be a world where i don't know one in three people had a mental health diagnosis and we had a workforce of you know two million people working (laughs) on mental health but that isn't any anyone's idea of nirvana is it no, it's not. And and I think one of the most important things is where possible, we do what we can to prevent mental health difficulties. I mean, we know there's much more that we could be doing as a society to keep people mentally well, if you like, to create good mental health. Uh, and, and there's a great deal more that we could do around that in, in, in neighbourhoods, in schools, uh, in government policies, um, uh, in workplaces, the places we all work in. Um, we could all do much more. Um but I think also we need to look at what resources are in communities that can help to to uh, support people early when they're experiencing mental health difficulties. Um, uh, for example, we know that that uh, if health visitors and midwives uh, and GPs have both the, the time and the training to, to offer women support during the perinatal period, um, they can do a great deal to support better mental health so, so that... Um, fewer experience the kind of difficulties that require a specialist response and do you think that that the debate about why it is that so many people are suffering from mental health issues can be part of a a broader debate about the kind of society we need it feels as though you can't separate these things out that that we know that poverty we know that inequality we know that a kind of environment of competition, an environment where people are worried about, especially young people, are worried about their status fueled by social media, that there's all sorts of factors in our society that are contributing to this level of kind of mental health. Bad work is another thing I've written a lot about in the past. So we we, we won't really resolve the, the underlying problem of what's driving the greater need for mental health services, unless we're willing to have a different kind of conversation about what we want from society, are we? Yeah, absolutely right. And I think it's understanding that that um, we've come a long way in terms of improving mental health awareness. And, and we've seen some very high profile campaigns that have encouraged people to look after their own mental health, to, to really tackle stigma and discriminatory attitudes towards people with mental illness. And, and those have all made lots of progress over the last decade or so. But we are still a long way from from having a mature debate about what creates a mentally healthy society. As you said, we know that poverty is particularly toxic to mental health. And given where we are now uh, with a cost of living crisis, which is putting a lot of people's financial well-being at risk, we know that that is a mental health crisis too, uh, as indeed was the pandemic and still is. Um, and so I think it's really important that, that we look at the structural factors that lie behind poor mental health uh, and, and um, really understand that, that for very many people, um, campaigns that look to change individual behaviour uh, aren't going to work because, because so often it's, it's inequities in terms of wealth and power. As you say, our mental health is inextricable from the health of our society as a whole. So, Andy, I want to turn in a moment to, to the vision of mental health, autism and learning disability services by 2033, the heart of of the report that we've done with you. But just before that, can, let's just deal with this view, which I think a lot of people have, but perhaps people don't articulate it because they don't want to be accused of being unsympathetic. But there is a view that says a lot of this is about the kind of medicalization of everyday unhappiness 
what's your what's your take on that what's really interesting is uh, first of all if we think about mental health as being a spectrum we're all on uh, i think that helps to take away from that binary notion that you're either mentally well or mentally not well and, and i think that's really important that we understand that because there are interventions across the spectrum not medical interventions predominantly not medical interventions um that can make a real difference. But I think we have to understand that that for very many people, the distress they experience is very real. It's very significant. It has a huge effect on every part of their lives. Um, and essentially, the idea is, is to have just enough intervention. For many people whose, whose symptoms or experiences are currently quite mild, um, then sometimes guided self-help, maybe some, some online support or, or other resources, can be enough to, to, to prevent the need for, for requiring a, a professional service. Uh, for others, you need quite a lot more intervention for, and, and using a, a variety of different approaches. But what's really interesting is, is that uh, the more evidence we have um, for, from um, uh, a whole range of different sources, the more it becomes clear that the basic things in life, having enough money to live on, uh, being safe, having a home, uh, having a good job, being okay, uh, are, are the most important things you can do to support someone with their mental health. And, and um, in some way, we come back to circle towards the, the social model. So, Andy, take us to 2033. You're looking out as Chief Executive of the Centre for Mental Health, 2033, and you are describing a world where we have got it right on mental health, autism, and learning disability services. So wh what are you seeing around you in 2033 that feels very different to where we are today? So I think the first thing we notice is that um, in the places we are, whether that's uh, at school, whether that's um, at work, uh, whether that's in the communities we live in, uh, faith communities, that uh, uh, efforts are made to, to prevent mental health difficulties and promote good mental health. Uh, and particularly in communities where we know there are the highest rates of, of psychological and emotional distress. Um, so the first thing you notice is, is that uh, we don't wait for someone to become unwell to think that there are things that we can do. Every child, when they go to school, learns about mental health and well-being. Uh, the teaching staff uh, know how to look out if, if a child seems to be experiencing difficulty uh, and, and the teachers themselves uh, look after their own mental health as well, and, and they're in an environment that's conducive to that. And, and you can see that across other institutions as well. Uh, if someone does need help for their mental health in, in uh, 10 years' time, um, what we hope is that uh, wherever they go for help, whether they talk to their class teacher, uh, whether they talk to their line manager at work, uh, whether they go and see their GP, um, whatever it is, that they're able to get access to the right level of support for them, again, as early as possible, but there's no wrong time to ask for help. Uh, and that help is roughly proportionate to their level of need and, and responds well. Um, we would expect that, uh, as we said with the report title, there's no wrong door for help. Um, uh, and that when you do have access to that support, it is uh, high quality care, um, it is compassionate, um, always, uh, and, and where possible, uh, the use of institutional responses, particularly for, for um, 
autistic people and people with learning disabilities, but for people with mental health conditions as well, the use of institutional care is minimised. Um, there's really good support in the community, uh, in the places people live. Uh, services actually reach out to where people live. There might be mental health workers in youth clubs uh, and, and uh, care homes and other places, so you don't have to go somewhere for it. Um, and then those services see you in the context of your life. Um, they support you with money and work and housing uh, and, and other matters that really matter to you. They look after your physical health as well as your mental health. There's no artificial division between those things. Uh, they relentlessly and proactively tackle inequalities and inequities. Um, and that, that really does mean uh, more than being active, being actively anti-racist, for example, actively adapting services to the needs of autistic people and people with learning disabilities for their mental health, uh, and so on across all range of, of, uh, of, of, of protected characteristics. Uh, we see services where people using them uh, are, have much more say in the way those services are run. Uh, there's a real spirit of, of partnership and co-production in those services. Uh, and crucially, we have a mental health workforce that is diverse. It's representative of the communities it seeks to serve. Uh, it's confident and skilled and properly supported for its own mental health and well-being too with good, compassionate employers. Um, and these are some of the things that we would expect to observe in 10 years' time uh, if this vision was uh, able to be uh, brought about. And it's interesting that you talk about user engagement just being the way we do things because we'll be talking later in this episode to Marsha McAdam, who's the uh, Deputy Chair of our Mental Health Network and an expert by experience. And she's very eloquent about the importance of listening to people who experience those services at first hand now i think andy someone listening to what you've just said might say well that all sounds great but it's a pipe dream it's a fantasy in order to address that kind of cynicism one of the things that was important about this report was it did contain some great examples of good practice so sandy just pick out a couple of examples of of the good stuff that's happening now which if we could only make it more generally available would be part of that 2033 vision we were very mindful in producing this that, that uh, uh, there's no point in producing a vision for 10 years' time which isn't ambitious enough. We need to have something to aim for. We need to have a sense that, that we can really go places. Uh, but it had to be realistic enough that within a decade, particularly a decade where we're starting where we are in, in a quite challenging place, um, so we were very mindful of that. And, and we really did look around for, for um, examples we could see now of, of services that embodied many of these characteristics. Uh, I, for example, talk about uh, the Young People's Advice Service in Liverpool. Um, it, it uses a youth information advice and counselling service um, approach. It's one of the early support hubs um, that many, many of us have been campaigning for to, to be everywhere. And so they provide on the high street access and in schools access to counselling and emotional support for young people, uh, free to access. You don't need an appointment. You don't need a referral. And you don't have a complex bureaucratic pathway to get in. Uh, but as well as supporting individual young people, 
Um, they have peer support arrangements and groups uh, and young people come together for social action projects. And so it's not just trying to support the individuals, it's actually trying to bring about social change uh, in the area it works. And, and they've had some, some uh, outstanding examples of young people who've come together through YPASS to, to uh, uh, campaign for changes that help them to have a better chance of good mental health and, of course, other young people too. So I'd particularly point to that. And then I'd look at, at something like the um, Primary Care Psychological Medicine Service in Nottingham. Uh, that's a service that works within uh, GP surgeries in, in, uh, in parts of the city. Uh, it's an outstanding example of, of taking uh, psychological treatment for, for people whose needs are often regarded as too complex and too difficult uh, for both physical and mental health services, people who experience enormous amounts of distress but have never had a, a really strong response before, uh, to have access to a multidisciplinary team uh, within their own GP surgery, somewhere they feel comfortable and close to home. Uh, and again, they've, they've demonstrated some remarkable uh, achievements in terms of meeting people's needs um, who would otherwise have been written off and, and seen as, as too complex, which, which of course, um, is quite shocking. So I think those are two examples that we would point to to show that uh, this can happen. So you've taken us to 2033 and described what it might look like, and you've talked about good practice. But we are in a very different place now. What, Andy, do you think are the absolute priorities for us? And um, and, and in that question, what I'm asking you to do is is partly to say what are the th most pernicious aspects of where we are now? What are the things that are the really most urgent for us to, to solve? I mean, some people, for example, would just talk about, you know, people being sent long distances to get residential care away from their families or whatever. But But... What is it that you think is most urgent to change? But also, what is the most important to change in terms of kind of going on that path to that 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 different future? What are be, going to be the critical things that we'll need to change if we are going to move from where we are to where you want us to be? As, as you say, the most um, shocking examples, if you like, of, of uh, uh, the current system not working for people are, are where, uh, unfortunately, people, both autistic people and people with learning disabilities and people with, with mental health needs, um, find themselves in hospitals far from home for, for very protracted periods of time. Um, of course, there are other people that don't get any help and support at all. Um, and indeed, the, the shocking and appalling racial inequalities in terms of the use of, of coercion uh, through the Mental Health Act. So we know there are many examples of, of where the system is working poorly now. Uh, I think tackling those, we really need, first of all, um, to acknowledge that that. Um, the NHS in England is investing in mental health services now, um, and there is a willingness to transform community services. Um, and we need to harness that. We need to build on that. We need to see that that uh, it is possible to make progress. This isn't a system which is forever stuck uh, in, in a kind of outdated model. We know we can make change uh, at a scale in mental health services otherwise. Um, we'd still have a system based predominantly on long-stay hospitals as we had in the 1950s. So we know it's possible, but it does need a real willingness to change, a real openness uh, to find different models and different approaches um, and to really open the system up to acknowledge that the current service is inequitable 
it doesn't meet the needs of racialized communities as well as it should. Uh, there are a number of different groups of people who don't get the right kind of mental health support that, that, that you might expect to be available. Um, so I think that willingness to change is so important. Inevitably, that's made a lot easier if there's funding coming through to allow for change to happen um, in, in a way which is, in a sense, you need that kind of bridge um, to get across to a new way of working. Um, and that's often what, what stops change from happening is that sense that uh, we can't invest in earlier intervention because our services are all stuck in, in uh, very high cost services for people who didn't get early intervention in the first place. And of course, that's where austerity in mental health services is so incredibly harmful. Yeah, but it's also, isn't it, Andy, where we've got to hope that the new integrated care systems have got that capacity to not just think about responding to the short-term challenges, but also those kind of deeper structural shifts that are necessary yeah. if we're going to move away from being in crisis. I think that's absolutely right. I think integrated care systems have all of the right wording. If you look at the, the uh, Act of Parliament that set them up, the words are all there. A real focus on inequalities, a real focus on population health, parity between mental and physical health, um, a focus on wider systems and influences on health. So uh, they've been set up with, with all of the right responsibilities and with that huge potential to create a collaborative approach, bringing local government together with the NHS in an equal partnership, um, really taking health out there and having those wider debates about what creates good mental and physical health and what puts it at risk, uh, and having that really strongly uh, place-based approach to health. It certainly has the potential to, to completely change the terms of debate. And I hope what our report does is gives, gives a bit of a roadmap to where those systems might be going and what they can uh, what they can do to start making this vision absolutely a reality in, in the places they serve. Andy, thanks so much for talking with me. No Wrong Door, um, the Centre for Mental Health report for us is available on the Confed website. So do uh, have a read. Andy, thanks so much for joining us on Health on the Line. Thank you. That was Andy Bell. After speaking to Andy, I caught up with Marsha McAdam. I'm delighted to be joined by someone I've got to know since I've been at, at the Confed and I've always found our conversations really interesting. That's Marsha McAdam. Uh, Marsha is a mental health influencer and ambassador for many organisations and social movements, including the Centre for Mental Health and the Speakers Collective. Marsha has used her lived experience to help people and services over many years, and she sat on some really kind of transformative boards and panels, including the Expert by Experience Group for Equally Well UK. And until recently, she was co-chair of the Greater Manchester Personality Disorder strategy. Mosh is a national speaker on matters ranging from parity of esteem, personality disorder, stigma and discrimination. And I'm also delighted to say that Marsha is vice chair of the NHS Confederation's Mental Health Network. Hi Marsha, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So t tell us uh, about yourself as much as you want to or as little as you want to and what have been the most kind of formative experiences for you in, of the health and care system? So I've got both physical and mental health needs. Um, I have a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, recurrent depression, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, type 2 diabetes, and a few other little bits in the mix. Um, and um, I 
have had some really good services, but then also some not so good services. Um, and throughout the years, I used to self-harm quite a lot until I took a near fatal overdose in 2008 that saw me in an induced coma um, uh, for three weeks um, and then being weaned around a week afterwards, you know, off the oxygen and that. And it was only then that I received life-changing therapy called mentalization-based therapy that saved me from myself. Um, but sadly, from there, being in that coma, I then developed more physical health conditions. Um, and now I um, use access domiciliary care. Um, and so I've received some really not good services. And at the minute, some really good services. I call them my fairy godmothers. And, and what do you think is it, Marsha, that that distinguishes between the good and the bad? Is it resources? Is it the attitude of the people who provide it what 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 do you think is is the kind of distinguishing characteristic of 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 the services and support you receive that's been useful it's the attitude of the people having borderline personality disorder i've always been on edge because of some really bad things so being really concerned around who's coming in my house and stuff like that to look after me has been something that has had negative impact over the years. But at the minute, I'm under Manchester City Council's complex care team, which is an in-house service. Um, and the carers are just so unbelievable. And But you can tell that they're taken care of because it means that they're then like that with me. I know it sounds daft, but I've seen the other side of it. No, Marsha, it's... I'm sure that's absolutely right. I think that compassion breeds compassion. Um, and I think that's such an important, I mean, it's, it's an obvious point, but it's such an important point as well. So, Marsha, you're really associated with being an expert by experience, the importance of, of, of listening to service users. Do you see progress in terms of the degree to which the health system, maybe local government as well, understands the importance of, of first-hand experience in, in, in decision-making? Sadly, there's some really negative experiences. Um, well, um, I myself, as you know, um, was the GM personality disorder strategy, which was patient-leading the way. It was devolution. Um, and I'm hoping that through the new ICS and the new ICBs that we will get people with living experience and their carers at the heart of the decision making. And do you see signs of that? In little pockets, yes. I guess that's one of the challenges that I put to the mental health board was that I wanted to go out and look at that. And I'm going to be doing that with some of your staff, Matthew, mm -hmm. um, is going out there and seeing what there is and Hopefully, as the confed, we can look into what a proper infrastructure would look like, um, and maybe it would it would we could then get a really good workforce going forward. You know, and do you think, Marsha, there are particular challenges about engaging people who've got a condition, you know, like yours? Is it that you've got a double thing to overcome here? So you've got on the one hand the kind of issue of kind of professionals versus amateurs which is you know doctors or 
nurses thinking, well, look, I've got the expertise and, you know, you haven't. There's that. But there's also the sense that because you have a, you have mental health challenges, that in some ways your opinions, your views aren't, aren't to be trusted because of that, because you have to overcome that challenge. So I guess it's a kind of double effect, is it? Years ago, it used to be. I remember being in a meeting and someone came in late and turned around to me and, what are you doing here? Who invited you? But thankfully, um, I'm now um, where I'm now at um, with chief execs and medical directors and that. I actually feel like I'm part of a team. And I know that doesn't happen everywhere, but I'm really hopeful um, that we are moving in the right direction. Marsha, the report that we've published, the Confed Mental Health Network that you're now vice chair of, that you know, we're discussing, we've been discussing that on this program, lots of recommendations. But I guess that for me, one of the kind of big messages of that is that the NHS cannot solve the challenges of mental health on its own. We're not going to, do you agree that we're not going to solve the problem of mental health simply within the health service itself, that it has to go wider than that? It definitely does. And we need political will. We need people, um, we need our politicians around the table saying that we can and we must do better um, and doing it together. Um, and in the report itself, there's some really positive case studies um, which demonstrates that there is some really good services out there. Say, for instance, Navigo, it's not mentioned in the report, but I visited it recently. Um, it's an award-winning social enterprise in East Lincolnshire for mental health. And when I visited, it was like, wow, I wished I could live here, you know, to get that care. And then there's the stuff going on in Somerset. And then uh, there's something called Choice Support. It supports people with both physical and mental health. Um, and so for me, there are bits of it out there, but how do we make it more of a norm, those really good services? Now, Marsha, this program is listened to by by people who are leaders in the health service. If you could just give them one message uh, as somebody who's spent so much time engaging with the system, sometimes satisfactorily and well, sometimes not so much, what would be the what would be the one thing you'd want leaders to understand from your experience? So, having borderline personality disorder, a lot of it's linked back to trauma in childhood, and then you go out and act out later on because you're in persistent distress. My worry is that over the last few years, what the young people have been experiencing, I worry that they go on to then develop those unhealthy coping skills like me. That, so for me, it's early intervention and prevention from the outset. And I don't think we have much time to do that. Um, so for me, it's Please let get, let's get the early intervention and prevention in straight away. And health inequalities is part of that, isn't it, Marsha? Because it's about not just open, not just having an open door to a service, but it's also reaching out to those communities and those people who aren't going to walk through an open door. They're needing to someone to hold their hand and bring them through that door. Culturally appropriate uh, services. Usually for borderline personality disorder, it's usually Caucasian female that get that diagnosis. Well, what about everyone else? Who are we? What's happening with them? 
And um, so for me, the work that the NHS Confed are doing around social injustices in, in that is something that I'm really looking forward to being part of. And then finally, Mosha, as I said, I'm I'm delighted and I'm proud that you're the vice chair of our mental health network. What, how are you going to use that role, Marsha? What 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 difference do you hope to make, not just the mental health network, but to the confederation as a whole? I'd like people to see the person and not just the chaos in front of them that is BPD. <laughs> I know that sounds daft, but years ago, people used to be, oh no, run away from me. I joke that psychiatrists and that used to hate seeing me and that, but I'm just a human being and I want everyone else to get the same support that I did get. Well, thanks, Marsha. And look, you know, I see you as an immense asset for the organisation. So, you know, in as much as part of what we've got to do here is stop thinking about people as being passive or being victims or simply, as it were, kind of drain of resources and understand that everybody has got assets and that indeed some of the people who've got the biggest challenges are the strongest people with the greatest assets because they've had to fight and and they've learned really important lessons along the way. So, Marsha, thank you for joining me for this interview and I'm really looking forward to working with you in the future. Thank you, Matthew. You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. <laughs>